Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Erica Hall is the co-founder and director of strategy at Mule. She's an acclaimed speaker and author of Just Enough Research and Conversational Design, both from a book apart. Erica loves helping people overcome the often invisible organizational barriers to doing good work. Here are your hosts, Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. Hello, and welcome to UX Radio. This is Laura Federoff. And I'm Chris Chandler. Today, we have a very special guest with us. We're talking with Erica Hall, who is a co-founder and director of strategy at Mule. Hi, Erica. How are you doing today? We're so excited to have you on the show. I'm, I'm really happy to, to be talking with you today. To get us started, I would love to know what was the impetus to start Mule Design. Wow, that was that was such a long time ago. Uh, my partner and I started Mule because we really enjoyed design consulting. Uh, that's something that uh, when I went from working in-house in a product company to working at a consultancy, I found that I really, really enjoy that work. And I, I just love going in and solving a discrete problem and immersing myself in, a, in an organization and being able to bring that external perspective and then finish and leave and, and go on to the next thing. And what I realized working in other design agencies and consultancies was that the choice of client was really, really critical to making you the kind of agency or consultancy you are. You're defined by who you choose to work with. And because of that, uh, Mike Montero and I said, hey, what if we do this crazy thing and start our own agency so we can really uh, decide who to work with, decide the kind of projects we want to take on, and, uh, and have our own thing. And that seemed like a great idea at the time. Not many people have changed our field multiple times. You're, you're one of the people who has. Uh, your book, Just Enough Research, I think ma- has made a huge impact on the field and you've recently revised it. There's a new edition coming out. Do you wanna tell people uh, what's in the new edition and why they should buy a new copy? Thank you so much for your, for your kind words. Uh, you know, when, you, when you do something like write a book, you, you're never quite sure how it you know people are going to take it or if people are going to find it useful or enjoy it and you know the first edition came out in 2013 which now seems like you know an eon an eon ago and you know people kept buying the book and so i thought it was it was still relevant and the topics seemed to still be relevant but i wanted to make sure that it was updated because six years ago was a long time. So part of it was just putting that, you know, 2019 look at the field into it. And the other big part was including some things that I'd left out and left out intentionally in the first edition. You know, when I first wrote Just Enough Research, I, I thought of it as the, it was the kind of book you know, there wasn't the book that I could hand a client who was maybe skeptical and saying, can't we just skip the asking questions part and get down to the talking about ideas and sketching part? And that was always fundamental. And that's, you know, that's something I learned early on in the first agency I worked at was a very research and strategy driven agency. And so that's just how I I thought about doing design fundamentally. Like you can't do the work unless you have the information you need to do the work. And I thought, well, there's no book 
that I can hand clients and everybody else is in the same position. So that's why I wrote it in the first place. And because of that, I left out uh, some topics that I thought were more advanced research topics because it was meant to be an explanation of the fundamentals of the research process and uh, a guide that anybody could use to you know, get more evidence into their design and development and product process and business. And so I didn't talk about surveys because surveys are, in my mind, a pretty advanced technique. And now six years later, it's clear that because of the plethora of tools and platforms that are available, everybody is running surveys. And so I thought it was really important to add uh, a whole chapter about what you should think about if you're thinking about running a survey, some cautions, and uh, some pointers on how to uh, do a better job of it. So I just love the title, Just Enough Research. There's such a perception when you're talking to a client or even internal stakeholders that research is going to take too much time. They just want to get the thing produced and launched. Um, So maybe if you could talk a little bit about how you came up with the title and why that was important to you. Uh, yeah, the the title was the first thing that occurred to me because, yeah, those objections like, oh, it's going to take too much time. It's going to take too much money. Uh, it's not really a core part of the work. Uh, and, the, and then the other or the counter to that at the time was this idea that there was guerrilla research or lean research or some like sketchy kind of research. And I didn't think that was right either. You know, I really... I object to the term guerrilla research because there's an implication that if research takes a long time or is very expensive, that's better research. And that's not necessarily the case. The idea is that based on what your goals are and what you need to know, there's the right amount at the time. And you're never done. And I think that's part of the message is that as long as you're you know, solving design problems or running a business or creating products, you're never done learning. And there's this idea of like you do a study and, and then you stop and you're done learning. And uh, I wanted to, to convey the idea that for any decision that you're trying to make, you can get enough information to make a decision. You have to or, or else you're completely paralyzed. And that's what people are worried about. Also, I I wanted to talk about the fact that so many of those objections about budget or about time are a complete smokescreen. Like there's always enough time to learn things. It's just that people don't want to because it's terrifying. It's terrifying to be proven wrong, right? That's everybody is rewarded our whole lives, you know, in school, at work, we're rewarded for ideas. We talk about, you know, brainstorms or people coming together to have ideas that are valuable. And ideas aren't necessarily valuable. And even one, even an answer you find or a piece of information that you're really excited about, a solution, has a really, really short shelf life. The world is always changing. And so you constantly have to be asking questions. And even if you ask the same question, over and over again, you'll get new information. So I really wanted to help just reorient people around this to say, if you're doing it right, you're always asking questions, you're always learning. And there's always a point when you say, okay, 
we have enough information to make this investment, to make this decision with confidence at this time. And to, and to just reorient people from, oh, there's a right way to do research, which is based on doing academic research, which is totally different. You know, if you're conducting a research study to bring new knowledge to humanity, that's very a very different goal, you know, and publish something in a peer-reviewed journal. That's a totally different standard and a totally different set of goals from, oh, we want to develop a good, successful product that doesn't have any unintended bad consequences. That's a different standard. And it doesn't mean that the research is worse. It just means you're learning things for a completely different purpose and to a completely different standard from uh, academic research. That is so true. I mean, I, I and again, I think the title frames the issue very, very well, right? In that sense, like addressing people's anxiety about that. I, I love your point about people are terrified. Uh, you made that point in an interview I read recently, I think on the, the D Scout uh, uh, website, mm-hmm. which I really liked about how how afraid everyone is all the time. Um, and I, I think that's true. I think that's especially true inside of bigger organizations where everyone is basically trying to please their boss or mm-hmm. you know the highest paid person. And so trying to even suggest that they don't know something already when they've already been told they have to do it is so challenging. Yeah, it's, it's terrifying. And that's the one thing in all my years of consulting is universal. People are just afraid of each other and afraid of talking to each other. And, you know, even in in the last few years, the book Radical Candor came out like, oh, we should just be really honest with each other. But then what happened is that got kind of weaponized, right? Because people didn't really address the power structure and the um, the incentives that make it more or less a good idea to be honest. You know, you've got to have a a safe and collaborative environment before you can do research and before you can have these conversations. You have to make sure that you all have a shared goal, that people aren't secretly in competition with each other, because that's that's where this toxicity comes from. And that's where uh, the fear around doing research comes from is, oh, if I reveal that I don't know everything, that's going to be used against me. And you have to fix that and if you fix that, your organization will be much better prepared and in a better position to do innovative things, to take risks, right? If you have that much fear, then everybody's cognitive energy and mental powers are being used to manage those sorts of power relationships in an organization. And that's you can think of that as all that energy going there instead of solving the problem better serving your customers, creating a better product, like doing things out in the world. The more that people are having internal power struggles, the less collective intellect and designability you have to do your business or organizational thing. So you have years of consulting experience. I'm curious, how do you overcome that with clients? Like, is, do you have a story of something that works really well? Uh, the thing about being a consultant is what works really well is coming in from the outside and charging a lot of money. I mean, it's it's really, it's unfortunate because uh, we really try to be allies to the people internally in a company because often what we find is we come in and the first thing we do is just talk to you know people throughout an organization if we're trying to help them solve a problem. 
And what we find is that a lot of times in organizations, there are really smart people with great ideas, many of whom might recommend things that are similar to or better than anything we might recommend, but they aren't listened to because of the way organizations work. So, you know, if we come in and we can ask really naive questions, we can walk into a room with the leadership and say, why do you do things like that? But if you're a couple levels down, you can't walk into a room with a CEO or vice president and say, why do you do that? That seems weird. (laughs) That is what used to be called a career limiting move. But we can come in and say, hi, that's our job. Our job is to not know anything about your business and have you tell us and then have us reflect that back to you in a way that helps you work better together and achieve your goals. So I think that the thing that works is listening to people. And this is something that can be very effective internally, even if you're not in a position where you think you have a lot of power or a lot of say, you know, designers have been talking about, oh, we want a place at the table, as though there's some magical moment when you're promoted to King Arthur's round table or something like that. That's not how it works. The way that you develop insight and influence in an organization is you Think about your own goals and your own questions. And you say, what relationships will help me get my job done? What uh, things aren't clear that I need to be clear? And you just sit down and, and talk to people and really listen and don't bring your own agenda. You just start by trying to empathize with them. Like there's so much talk in design now about, oh, you've got to empathize with the user. You've got to empathize with the customer. That's easy. It's really easy to say, oh, this person I don't have to talk to who's uh who buys the things that mean I have a job yeah they're easy to empathize with it's really hard to empathize with the person like well I was going to say in the next cubicle but everything's open plan which makes empathy even harder um it's really hard to empathize with the person having the loud FaceTime call at the next next desk but you have to to work together so you sit down with them and you just say hey like tell me about your job you don't presume to understand their job especially across discipline So if you're a designer, like sit down with somebody in marketing and just say like, tell me about what you do and and how my work, you see my work helping or or hindering what you do. You sit down with people in engineering, you know, you sit down with salespeople, you sit down with customer support people, you sit down with other designers, other researchers, like researchers don't even think to talk to other people in the organization. They just hope that they write a report and people care about their report. A lot of people are just put in that position in their jobs. But it's so powerful to grab coffee, grab lunch, whatever, hang out, informal, formal, depending on what helps you. And to say, like, I really want to understand what you do, what's important to you, where you see your challenges are. And then once you have that information, then you have a relationship with that person and you know things that mean you can talk about your work in terms that are meaningful to them. That's just such incredibly powerful advice. The idea that you would be interested in somebody else's problems and how what you do fits into their world, right, is such a such a disarming and powerful approach. Uh, if if listeners to this podcast take nothing else away, please write that down. That the way to have influence in your organization is surprise, surprise, talk to people. Sometimes I think yeah. that's my only trick. That's literally my only skill at this point is talking to people. But it's so important. It's so important to talk to people and it, but it seems so, it seems too simple. Like, I feel like I've, like, I've got to give this a, a named methodology and a diagram to go with it to be like the, the conversational 
corporate empathy method. I don't know, because it just sounds too easy. But it's the one thing people will avoid doing. It's like they want to put a, some sort of collaboration tool between themselves and other people. It's like, oh, put it on the Trello. It's like, come on, just just talk to people. But it's terrifying. Everybody is freaked out at every level in an organization. There are those things, right, that are like the third rail topics, the things that are out there in the world, in their organization, right, that everybody knows, but nobody will ever bring up in a meeting. And it's so interesting to see sometimes this little game to see how long it takes to find those. Like, here's this thing that you do that's really weird. But if you bring it up, there's a silence. There's a everybody gets uh, very afraid to talk about it. Um, I, I want to tell you that uh, you've actually uh, changed my life profoundly because I believe I now can accurately describe myself and my work as a conversational designer. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. I don't think I actually realized that that was a thing as a person who came to design late by way of social sciences. It took me a long time to even own that title. And especially since I didn't make pretty visual things, it, it, it was always, I would, you know, my, my imposter syndrome was very strong. But I feel like I can now say I'm a conversational designer proudly. I'm wondering, and, and you just touched on that, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and, and the, the concerns you wanted to address in, in your other book about, which is excellent and everyone should go by that one as well right now. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Yeah, that um, that was kind of supposed to be my my first book because I did a talk. Uh, my first conference talk was about the importance of of language to interface, and then I, I realized the issues went a little bit deeper because I, again we're designing interactions, uh, and we're we're creating these really complex digital systems that. Uh, that are fundamental to how business operates. But the way that we think about and talk about design is still so artifact-based. And it's connected to, yeah, and so I I talk about all this in the book, my short history of all of human communication, at at least, you know, in the the Western tradition of of human communication that goes back for, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, that we have to look at how people interact with each other and talk to each other because uh, that's like the fundamental model for humans interacting with a system. But instead, everybody's really comfortable passing documents around. Like our work is still really document-based, which is the antithesis of interacting and interaction design. Like our interaction design is still document-based. And that's a big limitation. And again, like everything else, it goes back to these things about how humans socialize with one another. Yeah, so as a social scientist, you you understand uh, like everything's in-group, out-group, everything's hierarchy. And those, those aspects of how we interact together as humans determine how we uh, create systems that a- interact with humans on our behalf. And so you really have to think about how you interact with other people. And that's fundamentally what design is. Design is fundamentally a conversation. And I was really excited. I found um, Hugh Dubberly, who is the creator of HyperCard, like way, way back at Apple. He has a, a design consultancy and he's been writing. I recently found his blog that's all about uh, how design is a conversation and about cybernetics and all this stuff mm-hmm. that I'd been like thinking about and interested in. I'm like, ah, he he's written like for the past few years, he's been writing about it as well. 
And I'm hoping that more designers start thinking this way and not just in the, oh, we're making a chat bot, we're making a voice system, but think deeply about conversation. But again, freaks people out because if you don't, like, what do you do if you don't make a thing? We define people's roles by what documentation they produce, which is only tangentially related to their ability to help solve a problem. I'm curious what you think makes up a good conversation. Like when we look at um, the user test plan and we're writing the research objectives of what do we want to learn, but instead of just getting in there and going through the questions one by one, um, it's, it's just interesting to me how many different attributes come into that conversation where you almost have to have use your intuition and use silence and really dig deeper. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are around a good conversation. It's the two things that make conversation work. Because conversation's kind of a miracle when you think about it. The fact that you could as as long as you speak the enough of the same language as another person, you can walk up to any random individual and be mutually understood. Uh, you know, people do this when they're they're visiting, um, you know, unfamiliar towns all the time. You walk up, ask for directions, ask where to get a cup of coffee, whatever. And the fact that you can do that is is kind of a miracle. And it happens because uh, there's an implicit goal and there's cooperation. So that's those are the the fundamental conditions for for conversation. Is you have to implicitly agree on the goal, and then you have to cooperate towards that goal. And the goal might be, oh, we're friends and we're just sort of reestablishing our mutual bond and, and hanging out together and having a friendly argument about uh, the new Star Wars movie. Like your goal in that case is just to like have a nice, pleasant interaction with your friend, right? But you both agree on that. But you can tell it's fun to to kind of practice the conversations going wrong. Um, the, the linguist Paul Grice came up with some maxims that are further articulations of the way people cooperate. And you can actually go through and, uh, and play the part of, of messing these up. You know, you've got to be to the point. You've got to, you know, take turns, things like this. And you can sort of start listening for when conversations go badly. And conversations go badly if like one person just dominates. I'm sure you've been to a party and you think you're having a conversation or you think like, oh, I, I met a new person at this party. And instead of the goal being, oh, we're going to make each other feel good and we're going to learn a little bit about each other, the little small talk thing at a party, one person just goes into a monologue about their work. Uh, that's not a like a functional conversation anymore unless your goal is, I want to learn. Like if your mutually agreed upon goal is one person really wants to like learn about the other person's like screenplay in detail, great. But a lot of times... Uh, the goals are in conflict. And, you know, like one person maybe wants to have a friendly conversation and the other person wants to win an argument. Yeah, that that's the way it, it goes badly. So that's that's basically what makes a good conversation. And if you say you're interviewing somebody and that's the, the context of the conversation, your job is to create the conditions. You know, if you're more setting the stage, you create the conditions for the other person to help you meet your goal. And, and that's what it is to be a good conversationalist, is to be alert to, oh, are we in sync? Like, 
do we have different goals? Um, am I supporting this other person or am I secretly undermining them? Because some people, when if you uh, if you have a conversation with somebody and, and you get that icky feeling, like we all get that, of like, oh, what, what happened? And sometimes it can happen with a close friend or a partner and you're like, oh, I was trying to interact with them and it went wrong. You think and you're like, oh, they were they weren't cooperating with me. They were like doing the thing that made me feel bad or they were talking too much or they were answering in like monosyllable answers. You can start to develop a sense for good and bad conversations and what makes those conversations go well or go poorly. Yeah, that's so great. The the instant example I thought of, which is so common, right? Is the goal of this conversation for me to solve your problem or to listen and, and have empathy for, for what you're trying to explain? Right. That is that is such a classic. Uh, what is the goal of this conversation? Yeah. Yeah, that's a aligned. real classic. And that's how people that's how people close to each other get in trouble. I think in conversations a lot is like, do you just want li- me to listen or do you because some people I'm a solver. Like if you come to me and this is something it, it took a while for me to really grasp that that wasn't always what was needed. Somebody would come to me with a problem and I'm like, OK, here I'm so and they're like, I just I just want to vent. And I feel like we've as a culture, maybe developed some ways to talk about that, like to say, like, I just need to vent. And then if the person is really, truly your friend or on your side, they're like, okay, I'll let you vent. Let me know if you want me to solve. Let me know if you need help, but I'm I'm just going to listen. And I feel like we've developed some uh, terms and phrases and techniques to, to help each other do that better. So the people aren't secretly super mad at each other. I'm curious, um, one of the quotes in your book was talking about um, directly attacking the high stakes in the conversation and or in your research. And so uh, one of the things that we do in our practice is try to identify what can make this this product or service fail and kind of address that head on. I'm, I would love to hear more about methods or techniques that you use to identify those high stakes and how you go about uh, really digging into those. Yeah, I think that's a real, it's a great question to to bring up, uh, you know, how might something fail or how might something go wrong or what the consequences might be? Because I think what happens is like designers and engineers get really optimistic, especially in more early stage companies. It can, it can feel uncollaborative maybe to ask questions or propose like you to even suggest that something might have consequences can feel like an attack and so yeah I'd say the really the the techniques are just making sure I mean it's always it's so like I said I've got to come up with more uh, named methodologies and diagrams because it's so the simple things that people don't do which are be really clear about your goals, be really clear about your assumptions and everybody's role in that and your expectations and have an open and honest discussion of are our assumptions correct? Are we missing anything? Are there any consequences uh, that might happen because of this? You know, what happens if we're wildly successful? And just t- again, the most important part of design is the talking part but that doesn't look or feel productive, right? That's why the post-it notes are so important because the post-it notes are a way that you can like have the conversation you need to have and be like, look, our conference room is covered in many colors of post-its. So clearly we've done design here. 
Like that's purely symbolic. That's an excuse to have the conversations you need to have are those sorts of activities. So you have some tangible output or else people start freaking out that you didn't do work. And the other thing is really you have to, you have to do your research to see how things have maybe failed in the past and you have to find the right analogies. Like analogous research can be so powerful, but so dangerous if you choose the wrong analogy. Like for example, the bad analogy a lot of companies are choosing now, like early stage high growth companies are like, oh, it doesn't matter if we lose a tremendous amount of money because we're like Amazon. But the only thing they have in common with the early days of Amazon is losing a lot of money, but not really and not for the same reasons because you're in a totally different business, right? So you have to be really clear about some of the more like what your model is, what your business model is, what your exchange of value is. And I think just mapping these things out because everybody does now, uh, designers do the customer journey or the user journey. And people don't map that against the business value created at certain points, right? So you're like, if you do that, if you map the, the business value and the customer value together at the same time, then that might reveal that making the customer unhappy is actually the thing that your business makes money from or somehow putting the customer at risk or creating some bad situation or making the customer happy is like you're just spending a lot of money, but they're not a good customer and you're not getting business value in return. And so thinking about the business and the customer together at the same time in in the wider world context is is something that people don't really do. Everybody just focuses on one side of it. But you can't succeed unless those things are in balance in a sustainable way. Another thing that I'm uh, I'm quite fascinated about is your background in philosophy, and I'm I'm curious who are your favorite philosophers? Who are the one? Who are your go tos? Who are the ones that you 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 return to again and again? Wow, uh, Spinoza's real good. Uh, mm. He's he's kind of underrated. Uh, who else? Dewey, the American pragmatist. I, I, I super like him. But I can tell you, I never thought trolley problems would, would still be a thing, right? Because I took, I took a winter, like the, my senior in college, I took a moral philosophy advanced seminar where basically all we did all winter was trolley problems. And I'm sitting there thinking, when in my life is this ever going to come up again like oh we tie somebody to the tracks here but this person's a nobel laureate but we have three children over here what if you actively divert the trolley you know what and then i sort of forgot that and then all of a sudden here we are and and everybody's like talking about autonomy and trolley problems and the good place you watch the good place that trolley problems episode was amazing right who knew we'd be out here building killer trolleys as fast as we yeah could? who who knew who knew yeah. So true. Erica, I would love to ask you, um, what advice would you give to researchers? Um, maybe the person that's already been doing it for several years and trying to improve um, their methodology around that. I, I think the, the most important thing, if you're working in a business context is to be really clear about how your work connects to the goals. Because I think a lot of, uh, you know, people who practice research come from many different uh, paths into it. Because it's still a, a relative, it's, uh, it's, well, it's debatable. Like the, the current incarnation of the field is, is relatively new and it's growing and there's a lot of enthusiasm. 
But I think the researchers who come out of more of an academic background are sometimes less well prepared for the political landscape they enter into. Like if you come from an environment where if you can present the facts and um, and back it up with like strong methodology and uh, rigorous analysis, then your peers will, you know, okay, we, we understand, like we believe you. And I've talked to some people who've come from that background who were completely blindsided when they present the facts and the facts are completely ignored for political reasons. So I'd say the most important thing, like there's so, we have, there's so many tools now, like the amount and diversity of like tools and platforms and ways of doing things it just exploded in the past few years. And it really does come down to that clarity and establishing that shared clarity around what do we need to know uh, and what are we going to do with that information and how do we make sure that everybody who um, who needs that information has access to it when they need it. And this is a lot of the work that's going on in research ops and forming research repositories and things like that to make sure that, oh, we're remembering the things we learned. But the most important thing is to make sure that you understand, again, how the individuals are going to use this information in their work, because it's still too easy to just ignore it. You know, I've talked to people in organizations that have whole buildings for their researchers, like they store them in a separate building. The research is going on, and then the designers and you know, the business leaders are kind of ignoring it. It's like, oh, great, you're learning things, you're learning things, but our business doesn't depend on whether or not we, we know those things. And so it's, it's that building alliances and building that understanding to make sure that if you're learning things, that the business as a whole is learning things. Uh, and that's hard and it's a lot of work and it's a lot of often uh, annoying conversations. But yeah, but the but the fact that people I, I get in arguments with people sometimes who are like it's who are so frustrated that you can't change beliefs with facts, and that's like this fundamental part of uh, humanity that we're kind of wrestling with now. Is like, but we have all the facts. Why don't people believe the facts? And it's like, no, people don't believe facts. So you've got to put your facts into a story, and this is offensive to some people. I've I've had conversations where people are legitimately offended that they have to tell a story with their facts and I'm like you're kind of at a disadvantage if you bring facts facts are annoying and facts are usually not um ego enhancing right facts are usually kind of a bummer because the world isn't like made for our like convenience and so you have to even work harder to put your findings into a candy coating that makes them digestible for people yeah I I think there's, there's such a tension, right, between people who, who learn to do research and have this um, uh, sort of presumption of objectivity. And so and the, the more you know about research, right, the, the more you're into the methods, the less clear everything gets, right? Like the, the best researchers know how nuanced and how much randomness and noise and, com- and complication mm-hmm. there is in the world. But the research and then the design, right, it's like, I always feel like you have to have a point of view. If you're the Mm -hmm. research lead and all you're doing is presenting the results, A, you're not going to be that effective. And B, I mean, I guess it's the same thing. How how is anything going to get done just by you offering facts up to the world? You need to have a point of view. You have one anyway, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think one thing is telling the story. That's hard. 
it takes work to tell a good story. You can come away with incremental improvements, but identifying an overarching theme and telling the dramatic story of, hey, we learned this amazing thing and pivoted this design to bring a, a better experience in the outcome. So I think there's, it takes work. It takes practice to tell a good story. Yeah. And, and, it, and the way you tell a good story is by understanding your audience. And that's why it goes back to having all those conversations. Because the best way to tell a good story is to know what's already meaningful to people. So you don't have to, because yeah, creating meaning is a lot of work. It's way easier. And this is what like good people who are good at branding are good at is is hooking into existing meaning and existing stories. And you can't do that unless you understand what's in people's like heads and hearts that you're trying to tell a story to. Because then you can say, oh, the story that you already tell yourself, the story that you already like believe in, here's how these facts fit into that. You'll have a much easier time than like, I'm creating a whole new like mythology of my research findings. If you're like, hey, I know that this is our company's mission and this is how you personally are rewarded. This is your participation. I know this is important to you. And here's how what I found fits into what's already important to you. And then you'll have such an easier time. But everybody has this idea that there's such a thing as objectivity, which they're, they're like, of course, there are facts that are true. But there's, there's way, way, it's like you're saying there's, there's, way more complexity and nuance and way less objectivity. And even in, um, you know, pure research, even in academia, there, there's a huge, it's like multiple crises now about how research is going, because it all depends on what studies get funded, what news about science gets reported. Um, there's bias in all of this. So it's like even what questions we ask, which is the, the first most important step, is totally biased. It's like, how do you pick what to learn about? And the more that you just sort of have this ongoing conversation and you're always sort of in, interrogating what you're finding in a supportive, collaborative way, uh, the better it's going to go. But that is work. And a lot of times the problem with design now is it's just like this machine of like produce, 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 you know, so that we can feed the engineers like everything's being driven by these agile processes and nobody feels like they have time to stop and think and frame things. But it doesn't take that much time. It just takes what feels like a, a terrible amount of effort. Yeah, so true. We like to ask all of the guests uh, this question, which is, uh, what would you like your legacy to be in our field? Wow, my, my legacy. Uh, I, I would really love it for uh, people to understand the value of asking questions. Like that's really it because everybody's so focused on ideas and answers and innovation and whatever name it goes by. Everybody's focused on, I'm just going to find the right answer and I can stop asking questions. And if I help like everybody to realize that the most powerful thing is, um, is to maintain that openness and that mindset and, and the fact that the question is always going to be, more important than any individual answer like that I think is uh, is my legacy it's like my other favorite philosopher you know Socrates but of course Socrates didn't write anything down so you know what Plato said Socrates said 
the only thing I know is that I know nothing. Like that's a great thing to just keep on your wall in front of you and say, you know, the best thing to keep in mind is that you can always learn more and you should always learn more, which is humbling, but useful. That's amazing. I love that. So where can people find out more about you? Like if they want to hire you, if they're lucky enough to get you, uh, where can they find more information about you? Well, I'm on uh, Twitter too much, uh, but it's good. I have good conversations with people on Twitter as uh, Mule Girl. And then MuleDesign.com is the uh, the studio site. And I, I write a fair bit. Like we've pretty much moved our blog over to medium at least for the time being and so i i write about stuff there as well wonderful what's your idea of the perfect gig right now somebody out there has got a perfect gig for you erica mm -hmm. what would it be uh wow that's a great question uh the kind of work i've been doing lately that i've really been enjoying is helping uh companies with their uh, evidence-based decision process because so many organizations have so much data like everybody got really excited about like oh we're just going to hoover up all this data uh, we're going to have analytics everywhere we're going to instrument every part of our interaction and then they end up with all this data and they don't have enough understanding or they've got people kind of working in silos and so uh, what I've been doing is working with uh, organizations to really understand like how do you make design decisions and how do you incorporate uh, data and different and qualitative and quantitative data in that process? And so it's a really, it's kind of a quick, uh, you know, six, eight week kind of thing. And we can make great, uh, like great changes just by having somebody come in from the outside and talk to people. And then you're all like kind of do this model thing together. And, so, and that's really that's really fun for me. And I've been working with like remote teams and stuff. So that's that's really ideal because a lot of change can happen in like a pretty short amount of time and it helps people work better together. And that's like, that's so much of what design consulting is satisfying for me. It's not that I want to create like, cause it's interactive design, right? It stuff gets plowed under constantly. It's not like, Oh, I'm going to make the interface that stays like that. That's going to be in like the design museum. That's not how design is anymore. But if I can help people who are theoretically working together, actually collaborate and and like each other more and really understand how their work fits together and be better at achieving meaningful goals. Like that to me is so great. It's like, oh, look, you're all getting together and you're all asking questions and you're not afraid of each other anymore. Like that to me is, is super fun. Maybe less afraid of each other. Wow. Yeah, be afraid of me. I can come in, I can be a common enemy too. Everybody can just be afraid of me. That's also a service I can totally provide. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, uh, especially just to round this year out. Um, thank you tremendously for your time. Oh, thank you. I really, I really enjoyed the conversation. You know, I can talk about this stuff for hours and hours and hours. So it was, it was super fun. Thanks. And we'll try to get you down to LA again sometime soon. Yeah, it's not that far away. I know I should get back there. Exactly. <laughs> UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. 
Philosophy helps entrepreneurs and organizations validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy with an IE dot IS.